Hey everyone, it's me Shimon and welcome to episode 18 of yet another tech podcast. This week I'm joined by Mark Bastiner from Beyond. We'll be discussing about Asus ROG Phone 2, problems with Razer products, the world of cryptocurrency, cryptography and much much more. So hop along for the ride folks, this is going to be really really amazing. What? You've never tried Sleepy Owl coffee before? You know it's delicious, right? I mean, I'm not supposed to give my opinion, but their hot and cold brew coffee is pretty good. Alright, still not convinced? I'll cut you a deal. Visit sleepyowl.co and use promo code SHIMON, that is S-H-I-M-O-N, and you can get 10% off on your order. Alright, on to the episode. Alright, so for those who don't know about you, why don't you introduce yourself? So, hi, my name is Mark Bursteiner. I've, I've uh, been around the, the circuit, the tech circuit, for the last, what, like 10 years, I guess? Um, my, my sort of consumer tech journey began uh, with covering the original Android G1 launch in New York City uh, in partnership with T-Mobile uh, for my, my buddy James Watley, who was over in the UK working with a, a website called, I think it was called Mobile Industry Review, if I remember correctly. Um, and they didn't have a correspondent in New York City, and that's kind of where I got my start um, on, on, on covering consumer technologies. Uh, and right now, I'm working in the applied cryptography space. I've ap applied uh, or parlayed those skills into all kinds of different things. Um, I've worked in tech, like I said, for the last 10 years. So not always consumer tech, not always hosting videos on uh, on channels on YouTube. Uh, but I also build. So whenever I'm not actively building, that's when I'm doing media and uh, video and podcasts and things of that nature. But uh, what I do for bread and butter is build things and right now we're building a digital card game called beyond that's amazing so we will, we will talk about it a little bit later so tell me, what, what's your current daily driver these days my daily driver these days is the pixel 3 xl huge huge shout out to dbrand dbrand has been incredibly supportive of my career uh over the last few years even though i have not really been able to find the bandwidth uh, to, to do as many placements for them as I really ought to be doing. They still keep sending me devices, uh, and I thank them very, very much for doing that. Uh, it helps me stay on top of what's happening in the industry. And the Pixel 3 XL is still very much my daily driver. The software has gotten pretty bad, but you can't beat that camera. Yeah, I totally agree. So recently I updated to OnePlus 7 as my primary device. That's going on pretty well, but I kind of miss uh, the camera. <laughs> Like, can't after using it. Pixel 3's camera, I'm totally spoiled. Can't beat it. You can't beat that camera. <laughs> what, what do you think about the bottom notch <laughs> on the Pixel 3 XL? Has that been bothering you? That The big robot face notch? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a notch. You get over it, right? Like, it's like any other thing in your life, you know? It, it's just a thing. It's not my favorite. It's not my first choice. I think the worst thing about it isn't how big it is. Or how much real estate I lose, or even the uh, the cutout if I try and fill the screen with video. My biggest issue with it is that it it uh, it it shortens the amount of space that you have available to you for your notifications. Uh, so you can only ever see at any given moment, like I think four notification icons yeah. max. Correct four. It, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. I'm an Android user. You know, I've been. I'm used to seeing eight thousand notifications up there and being able to see at a glance uh, what's <laughs> going on. So I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve about the whole thing. But other than that, look, I mean, like I said, best camera in the game. It more than makes up for it. 
yeah like even by design nowadays like even if you have a notchless smartphone you can still see only four icons and then it just truncates itself it's pretty annoying What? in my opinion Stop yes bits <laughs> that's how it is i i hope that changes with android q but who knows yeah, might have been who knows? talk about which i did you like sign up for android q beta by any chance I have not been fussing around with the beta this time. This is the first time since, I mean, I think maybe ever, uh, that I have not installed the beta on my daily driver. I think I finally learned my lesson. Uh, don't do it on your daily driver. <laughs> um, but I also, my bandwidth has gotten so limited uh, that my, my attention towards uh, consumer electronics in my day-to-day life has has gotten truncated uh as well uh especially like i said as i'm building i i really have such such limited bandwidth that i have to kind of pick and choose which things i, I pay a lot of attention to and as you know running betas can can consume a lot of time very quickly yeah it's just a rabbit hole you just go deep and deep inside it <laughs> and i'm a tinkerer it's hard to stop yeah <laughs> i guess uh so talking about consumer electronics and all Exactly today, Asus ROG phone just got launched. The second edition, the second generation. Did you see about that? I did. I did. I actually woke up to that news myself this morning. Uh, that was one of the things that I was doing this morning is uh, just <laughs> kind of catching up with the, the the landscape. And I'm actually pretty stoked on it. I I, I don't think that it's going to be a groundbreaking device. You know, it's just mm -hmm. good to see that we're continuing the charge in that arena. Um, I think Asus has been making excellent devices across the spectrum. They've definitely fallen flat on their face a number of times, but I've reviewed Zen phones. I've reviewed Zen watches. I've reviewed a lot of devices in the Zen line, and we know that Asus can make good products. Uh, and the first ROG phone got a lot of praise. Uh, it does a lot of things right. Um, I think what I'd like to start seeing in the future is a little bit less of an emphasis on the creative and aesthetic aspects of a what would be considered a gaming device and a little bit more focus on the just the power under the hood and how it, it is it is a, a sort of a, a, a not a unitasker but a, a device that is a specialized tasker uh, specifically mm -hmm. focused on games but without that like gaudy uh, you know hashtag gamers spelled with a Z uh, yeah. feel. <laughs> Uh, because it's it's such an incredible and powerful device, and I think that they feel that way too. They, uh, if I if I remember correctly, they included that uh, sort of like basic Zen UI on there, uh, so mm -hmm. that you can you can kind of you know cut away some of that really gaudy uh, ROG red and neon branding. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think I think it's a great device. I, I would love to see more and more of this. Uh, I haven't had a hands-on with the first one, and I don't expect to have a hands-on with this one. Uh, but the more specialized uh, time that we get uh, in this field, the better, uh, because mm -hmm. I think mobile devices are are a, uh, are a are not a stopgap. What's the word I'm looking for here? They're they're a stepping stone. Uh, they're yes. a stepping stone from from uh, our computers, what we consider traditional computers to the, the sort of the connected future of maybe not necessarily wearables, maybe not necessarily Elon Musk's Neuralink, uh, but some <laughs> sort of a, a more um, uh, persistent device throughout our, our day uh, that isn't necessarily a, a handheld or pocket-held communicator. Um, and I think having these specialized devices really kind of uh, highlights 
that these things are, are useful for things other than consumption, for things other than marketing, for things other than basically being a fire hose of data uh, for companies to make money off of users for. Um, I, I really want to start seeing mobile devices start to have more of an impact in our day-to-day -day lives, not just in gaming, but in the uh, activities and the tasks that we have to do outside of our digital realms. These mobile devices could be helping us do them so much more effectively. Um, and even just, uh, you know, other kinds of tasks for our health, things like uh, like insulin uh, and checking your blood sugar. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of innovation or uh, even evolution on that front. And I think the more that we see more of these specialized devices, the more uh, manufacturers will start to, to wrap their heads around that. Correct. I totally agree. So considering it's a gaming device, do you like prefer playing games on your smartphone? Well, I think it's a different use case. Um, I think it, it, it depends on what kind of a game it is. Uh, you know, I, when I play games on my phone, and this has been the case since the App Store launched in 2009, 2010, uh, the, the, the kinds of games that you play on your phone are very different than the kinds of games that you play on a console or on a PC, or at least that's Agreed. how it's totally been, agree. right? That's how it's been in the past, right? But the, the paradigm is shifting a little bit because the, the truth is that our mobile devices are the most powerful devices that we have if you live in, you know, let's say, uh, in, in Far East Asia, if you live in Thailand, if you live in India, if you live yeah. in, uh, even here, in, I'm in Portugal right now, if you live in Portugal, uh, people don't really have TVs here. Uh, they have phones and they have a laptop. Uh, and they That's don't even play all that many, that many games here. Uh, so it really kind of depends on your lifestyle. For me, I kind of grew up with a mobile device, so I use my mobile device to play games that I can play with my found time. Right, something that's a, a sort of like bite size, uh, almost like I'm carrying a Game Boy or a Nintendo DS. Um, it's something that I want to be able to pull out and get a level or two done, or put a little bit of work in. I've been playing a little bit of Space Plan lately. It's a mindless clicker, but it's one of the only ones worth actually playing and spending money on. Uh, published by Devolver Digital. There's a lot of incredible games and a lot of incredible innovation happening on mobile in terms of gaming as well. Uh, but I don't use my mobile device as my primary gaming console. But seeing mm -hmm. that seeing something like the ROG phone uh, and ROG phone two uh, make make it very clear to me that that's a that's something that people want that they're even able to to ship a second version of the product tells me that the first one did well enough for them to continue the experiment and I see no reason why we shouldn't continue down this path especially when so many countries in the world are already using their mobile devices as their primary gaming consoles we should absolutely be continuing to explore that avenue. Yeah, like not not even for gaming, but it's like their entertainment console. They're like watching movies, listening to songs, and everything is just their entertainment device of their choice. It's it's true. So, uh, so I was just reading, catching up on the specs of ROG Phone Two. What really stood out to me is the high refresh rate display. It's actually OLED. It's an OLED panel at one twenty hertz. This is really amazing because the highest refresh rate was well, OnePlus Seven Pro with ninety hertz. And they somehow managed to put 120 hertz on this panel. It's pretty interesting. It's cute. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I I played with the uh, the uh, the Razer phone, the original Razer phone that had. It was the first Android device with a higher refresh rate screen, and I thought it was super cute. I thought it was really nice. Um, obviously, we're gonna you know we're all gonna get there eventually. Uh, but this is very much a sort of you know me first play. Uh, to do it with mm -hmm. OLED, I think is really incredible, really cool. Uh, I prefer an OLED display overall for my eyeballs. However, XDA did a uh, did a deep dive to see just how much a true black will save you versus a regular dark mode. 
and mm-hmm. it's actually really not all that much. It's a pretty negligible amount, and that kind of put it in my mind that I think that budget phones have gotten to the point now where I can go back to trying them. Uh, the only thing that I'm really going to miss is an incredible camera, but I think the Pixel 3a might have me covered on that front. Um, having a, such a high refresh rate screen is fabulous if you need it. Uh, and on a mobile device, basically no one needs it yet. Uh, it's, it's, it's really nice when you're looking at the UI in Android for it to move so crisply and cleanly. Mm-hmm. That's fabulous. But in this context, we're talking about a gaming phone. And uh, when I reviewed the Razer Phone 1 back in 2017, uh, there's still, there, were, there was like a list of maybe 10 games and none of them were worth playing that supported a 120, uh, 120 hertz refresh rate. Uh, so that list hasn't gotten all that much longer and even the ones that do take advantage of it and, and uh, have a reason to do so have a lot of other issues as well. Um, on, on mobile, latency is still a thing. Um, there aren't a whole lot of input methods uh, that allow you to do things like play a first-person shooter at a particularly high rate of success. Um, I know that's one of the things ROG is doing as well. They have those paddles on the sides. It's really incredible that they have so, so many add-ons for the device to really flesh it out into a full-on portable console, which I think is great. Uh, but until we see a more consistent competitive scene, uh, playing at 120 frames is, is just kind of a, a tech demo. Mm-hmm. I completely agree because even nowadays you don't have more than 20 games, if I recall correctly, which can run like above 60 FPS. And even now, like a majority of people don't even hit 60 frames per second on their mobile device unless they're using a flagship device. Like, That's exactly like currently right. the most played game right now, which are like people are completely ranked towards is PUBG, PUBG Mobile. Right. And lots of people are just running it at 30 FPS, 40 FPS. And the only main goal right now is to hit smooth and extreme, which literally means 60 FPS. <laughs> right. Exactly right. You're exactly right. And I'm not sure that the mobile uh, use case is ever going to be the one uh, that gets people to, to want 120 frames per second. Like, especially as desktop displays get better and better by the day, mm-hmm. we're looking at 200, 240 plus hertz on on desktop monitors these days so if you're the kind of person who's really looking for a competitive edge then the first thing you're gonna do is not play on a phone right like (laughs) (laughs) right so uh i think it's really cute i think it's great i think it's it's you know someone's got to push the envelope forward and someone will buy this rog phone too I'd love to play with it but i don't ever really see myself using a mobile device as my primary uh, gaming device in the sense that I'm going to play, like I'm going to play Zelda on there. You know, until input methods get better, I'm going to carry my Switch around. And the thing with the Switch is it, it's, it's, a, it's a 720p display uh, at 30 frames per second. I still have as much fun in Zelda as I would any, on any other console. Uh, because I get to play it wherever I am. That's the value of mobile, right? You don't need that high fidelity experience with mobile. Um, I, I, it, I have had the chance to see what Zelda looks like, Breath of the Wild looks like uh, in 60 frames per second in 4K because you can get a, uh, you know, you can get an emulator, you can get a ROM, you can go through some illicit means uh, and get it running on a computer. And I've seen it, it looks incredible, but that means that I'm tethered to the computer. 
so we have to start to sort of wrap our heads around that the value add of mobile is a very different value add than, uh, than a, a console or a desktop device. And some of those need high frame rates and some of them don't. So considering how you mentioned, like you reviewed the Razer phone back in the day, how was your experience being with like Razer products in general? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was a smooth segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's um, I've reviewed them. Um, there, I have. I to this day, I have yet to find a Razer product that I can recommend honestly. Um, I to this day have yet to find a Razer product that works out of the box as advertised. Uh, without jumping through hoops, uh, without having to bend over backwards for a device. I think there's maybe two or three exceptions to this. One is I bought a, a Razer Renata Chroma in 2017 that worked. Uh, that's the best thing I can say about it. It functioned as a keyboard. Um, and the other, the other thing that I think I can say uh, was helpful are things, I suppose, uh, were actually a product of this other major issue that I've had with Razer products. Look, when I've, re I've been reviewing Razer products since, I wanna say, I think 2015 is when I started reviewing them. And that was when I was at a channel in uh, Southern California. So I was right by their office. I really got to know them, meet these people, meet the team, really fabulous human beings who are working really, really super hard on delivering a great product. Um, but that's just not what has happened. Uh, you know, there's a difference between intent and results. And uh, the the products that I've reviewed are, are unbelievably unreliable. And I've gotten the same feedback from all kinds of other creators and YouTubers as well. Um, the only people who I've ever had tell me via Twitter that they have bought and used a functional Razer device and kept it are Dave2D and um, I believe it was Eber from Hardware Canucks said that they have a, a Razer device that they use for production. Um, I have to imagine they got some white glove treatment from Razer because <laughs> I bought a $4,000 4K monster in 2017 to review. Uh, the idea being I was about to, to get rid of my MacBook Pro. I've had a MacBook Pro for basically my entire adult computing career. I was a PC kid. I grew up building computers with my dad. Uh, but when I, when I went to college, I bought a MacBook Pro and never looked back. And ever since then, I've been getting MacBook Pros to replace them. And in 2017, it was finally time to replace my 2014 uh, MacBook Pro, which is the last generation, I think it was actually a 2015, um, uh, the last generation that had an NVIDIA GPU in it. Okay, so I assume you had to just cut around this because this is such a perfect example of, of Razer's uh, inattention to detail. Um, I hate to make this a rant on the episode, but suffice it to say that Razer wants to charge Apple products, uh, pr excuse me, Apple, hold up, Razer wants Prices. to charge Apple prices without delivering an Apple quality experience. Uh, and they think that they can get away with just shipping laptops that look like Apple laptops and that have branding like Apple laptops, uh, but don't actually work. Uh, the first machine that I got from them, I got in, uh, or I started reviewing them in 2015, like I said, but the first one I bought, uh, I bought for $4,000. I bought the Big Bad Mamma Jamma, the 4K display, um, desktop 1080 under the hood. 
it was the last behemoth of a computer that they sold before they, they uh, started making the thinner 17-inch uh, Proline. And I bought it out of pocket with the intention for it to be a review of, hey, a, a Mac user buys a PC for the first time in over a decade. This is my first PC computer since 2006. And Razer is what got me to do it because they have so much power. Look at this display. This is one of the only computers that you can get on the market right now with a 4K display and so on and so forth. I got it and it had driver issues from day one. Constantly Oof. having the keyboard stick, not, not physical keyboard stick. Keys would just decide to not depress. Uh, and the the trackpad did the same. It would just stop input, and sometimes it would go haywire altogether. I wiped it two times, and I decided to just go about my business. I was like, look, this is a, a monster of a computer. This is a small thing to try and deal with, but it never got any better. Uh, and eventually, about eight, nine months had passed, and I, and, I, and I said to myself, this is early in 2018 now, I said to myself, this thing is too heavy, too impractical, and if it were working perfectly fine, that would be one thing, but it's not. It is, it is, a, it is, there are two things that you need to use a computer, a mouse and a keyboard. And those two things do not work on this $4,000 computer. So I reached out to Razer because like I said, I had had a chance to meet them and I said, hey, look, here, here was my plan. Can you please swap this thing out? I hate it. I, I just, I wanted to review this, but I hated it so much. The experience was so bad that I decided it would be better to say nothing if I didn't have anything nice to say. So I asked, can you please swap this out for something that I don't hate? Uh, and they said, yes. So I got a 15 inch touchscreen 4K display Blade Pro. Uh, not, the, not this most recent model, the model just prior. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the model, the last model they made actually with the F keys without the symbols below them lit up, if you know what oh, I'm talking okay. about. Yeah, yeah uh, it was that model. And that model, believe it or not, had very similar issues, uh, <laughs> but they were all driver related. And this is my hunch that uh, Razer does not bother uh, to get their drivers to work because they ship a new computer year over year. And those, those hardware components are changing year over year, the same way that Samsung's trying to sell us a phone year over year. So they ship mm -hmm. drivers that straight up just don't work. What they did was they sent me that 15 inch uh, machine and that's how I wound up with two other Razer products that I don't hate with all of my, the fibers in my being. Uh, because the machine they sent me, there was a difference of $800. They sent me a $3,200 machine and I had bought a $4,000 machine and I wasn't gonna let them eat $800 of my money. Uh, so I asked <laughs> them to send me their fancy speakers, their fancy THX, uh, Nomo Pro speakers. Those have worked pretty well since day one. They sound great, um, decent hardware design. My main quibble with them is that the software is trash. Um, the, the Android app for it is just trash. It takes forever to connect. Uh, it's just not great. Uh, but the sound on them is fine. And then they also sent me a Razer Keo, which I have used uh, for a number of streams and I used for I use for video calls and people are always saying, oh wow, that you look you look pretty good. It's got a ring light on it. Those two products, mm -hmm. no problem with them. They work pretty fine. 
uh, but they're also a fraction of the cost of an actual working laptop computer. So this second computer started biffing it on a daily basis, on a multiple times on a daily basis. I would just be using my computer, everything would stop responding. No trackpad, no keyboard, nothing. And oh, no. I imagine I could, I genuinely could not figure it out. I had had it for two months and I reached out to Razer and I said, I have had this thing for like two, three months and it can't open Photoshop without locking up and then having, forcing a, a hard reboot. So That's, they that said, okay, bad. <laughs> let's try and start doing something about it. So I had to, I had to ask nicely uh, for them to replace my my non-functional product, which they agreed to do. Um, they did not want to replace it with a comparable product, however. Um, they said, and they also did not want to send me a machine to replace it until I sent the other one back, which they had, I believe, gone above and beyond to do the first time around. Uh, if I remember correctly, they sent me uh, the replacement, and then I sent the original computer back once I had gotten it, which is, I think, for most people, pretty rare. Um, so I do thank them for doing that. The, the, re the, the replacement computer that I had, that 15-inch, I actually did find out what the deal was. Um, just before I was packing it up to send it to them, it was something to do with the power adapter. So this is, what, this is the final state that I sent the computer to them in that I never actually heard back from. Uh, when that would happen and the keyboard and mouse would lock up, it was still recording all of its input. But if it was plugged in, you had to unplug it. And then once you unplug it, all of that input would suddenly hit all at once. All of the buttons wow. you hit, all of the mouse movements, all of the clicks, everything would happen all at once. And if your, if your computer were unplugged, same thing. If it were unplugged and this happened while it was unplugged, you have to plug it in and then it would get all of its input all at once. Wow. Which is <laughs> insane. <laughs> For a $3,200 flagship computer, like that is absolutely insane and unacceptable for a computer that costs that much to be that dysfunctional within two months of purchase. Mm -hmm. That to me, mm -hmm. that's a lemon. As far as I'm concerned, that's a lemon. It doesn't work out of the box. That's like buying a car and your steering <laughs> wheel alignment being off, off of, the, off of the manufacturing run. That's insane, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. what they said they would do is send me a replacement, but they refused to send me a comparable machine. Um, I don't need a high refresh, just like we were saying about mobile devices, mm. I don't need a high refresh rate on my laptop. I don't. I don't game on my laptop. I work on my laptop. So what I need on my laptop more than anything else is real estate. I don't care about the other trade-offs. I need 4K resolution. That's the mm. reason I bought a Razer computer in the first place is because it was one of the only computers with a 4K display. I even told them, don't send me the newest model. Send me the model just before this one if, you, if it means you'll send me a 4K display. I'm not trying to get you to upgrade me every two months. I just want you to give me a computer that works. And they wouldn't do that, so they sent me another 15-inch uh, Blade Pro uh, with 120 frames refresh rate. That is completely useless, completely and utterly useless. I use it for literally nothing. Every once in a while, a Hardware Connects video will load up at 60 frames per second. <laughs> oh, like, God. That's, a, that's about all I can offer you. And even then, <laughs> this machine in particular, and this is maybe the worst one that I've gotten from them to date. 
this machine's driver issue, every time you wake it up or boot it, it, whether from a cold boot, it's been shut down, you boot it up, or it was sleeping and you wake it up, within the next 60 seconds of it being awake, the keyboard and mouse will lock up for a few seconds indeterminately, uh, and you just have to wait. Sometimes it's like five seconds, sometimes it's like 20 seconds. And then when it comes back, it does the same thing, all of the mouse movements and then catch up. The worst wow. part about it is it wakes up on its own. I don't know if it's an accelerometer issue. I don't know if it's a Bluetooth issue. I don't really care because it's not my fucking job to care because I'm the consumer and I already gave you my money and I just need a working product. It wakes up in my bag and it's happened three times now. The first time was the worst because I didn't know that it was possible for it to happen. And I didn't know what was happening. I was on my way home from New York uh, to Philadelphia. We just moved out of Philadelphia. And uh, I was on the bulk bus home from New York and I was working on my phone and realized that my left leg had gotten exceedingly hot. And I <laughs> wondered why, <laughs> because <laughs> there was air condition and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what was going on until I opened up my backpack and realized that my laptop was indeed on and had gotten so hot in my bag that I needed to use my hoodie to take it out as an oven mitt. I, I couldn't Ooh. touch it with my fingers. In fact, shit. I burnt my thumb the oh, first shit. time I tried to touch it because I could <laughs> not get it out because it was so hot. It already smelled like burning plastic. It already smelled like something was about to break inside of it. But I took it out and I let it cool down. And it, once it was there, of course, it was non-responsive. I had to actually, you know, shut it down by holding the power button. So now that I knew that that was happening, I started keeping an eye out for it. And sure enough, it kept happening over and over and over and over. It happened again most recently in New York. I took another video of it uh, in New York just a, a day or two before we left for Lisbon. It was awake in my backpack. And I had originally thought this must be a Bluetooth issue because there's another repeatable issue that you can uh, that you can reproduce if you just set up a bluetooth device with the, with the computer and i use jobber 65t actives as my primary headset so every time i take this out from my pocket if it's in proximity of both my phone and my computer it'll try to connect to my computer and i thought that that might be what the issue was in new york but i hadn't touched these uh, so that's definitely not what woke them up, woke up my computer in my backpack. Uh, and it happened again. And I took it out and I caught it in time before it was an issue. But that's where I am now using this trash heap. And I call it the Razer Sometimes Hot Plate. That is the, the newest addition to the Razer product line. It's a hot plate <laughs> sometimes, but only when Razer wants it to be or only when you're about to do some work. Uh, or, or, or whenever, it doesn't really matter. Just sometimes it's a hot plate, sometimes you can cook on it, sometimes you could burn yourself on it, so you gotta be careful. The rest of the time, it's just a barely functional computer. Wow, that's quite a bit of story. Like, as a point, as a point of view from a customer, that's pretty bad. Like, this is your third replacement unit, if I recall correctly? That's correct. Wow, <laughs> that's really this is my third replacement unit after spending four thousand dollars in 2017. <laughs> so did you like ask for another replacement because it's clearly not working as intended? 
I did, I did, and I was not content with what they were telling me, which was, uh, we're not going to give you any more replacements. Send us your computer, and we'll diagnose it, and we'll fix it and send it back to you. Or if we find that we can't fix it, then we'll talk about a replacement, because replacements haven't been working, obviously. Well, there's nothing else to try. A replacement is the, is the, the last line of defense. Um, and they, they said they wanted me to send the computer to them so that they could troubleshoot it, without offering me anything in the meantime. <laughs> like, are you going to pay me for the work that I lose? Are you going to pay me for the days of work that I'm not able to put in because my tool that I bought from you is unable to get me to the job? This is no different than, than a car. And in the, in the mm -hmm. U.S. and in New York State, uh, the Lemon Law applies to computers the same way it applies to cars because these are tools, tools for mm -hmm. work. And they might be used for games, but in a lot of contexts these days, games are how people make money. And mm -hmm. I cannot justify sending a computer for maintenance that's this new, presumably. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's refurbished. I asked for a new machine off of the line, but I don't know if it's refurbished. Um, that's completely unacceptable to me as a consumer. Um, and I think that that's one of the really big things that we've gotten away from in YouTube and, and product device reviews. Um, just about every channel on YouTube has become a mouthpiece for these companies that are shipping one device after another so that they can get our data. Uh, that's the other most egregious thing about Razer uh, that uh, I, I can't even wrap my head around how they're still in business. They're so mm -hmm. consumer hostile. They're so unbelievably consumer hostile. Um, the Razer Synapse drivers, uh, back when GDPR had the notices going out, mm -hmm. even if all you had installed on your computer was the Razer driver for your keyboard to work, they sent mm -hmm. a GDPR notice, meaning, meaning that your typing is leaving your device. The typing, your keystrokes, are moving to Razer's servers somewhere on this planet, and you don't know where. What? Wow. Is it, like, is that real? <laughs> it's, that's the presumption that I have to make when <laughs> a company sends a GDPR notice. A GDPR notice is a privacy notice about how mm -hmm. they're handling your data. And if Correct. they sent that notice to a user who is only using, let's say, a Razer keyboard, they have to have Synapse installed. The only data that they might see of yours is your, you know, your email, your username, your device info. But presumably, because the Razer Synapse drivers are also collecting information, they tell you straight up, and it says so in the GDPR notice, that it might include your keystrokes. Is that a, wow. like, is that a joke? What? <laughs> That's dumb. You ask me. On top of that, like this is the same company that in, in the middle of the fervor around applied cryptography and crypto tokens, crypto networks, cryptocurrencies, right? Crypto is short for cryptography, right? Cryptography is something that humans have been using for as long as we've been alive to communicate. We used it during wars. We've used it in classrooms. We've used it when you're, when you're, when you're in fifth grade and you want to get a message to Susie across the room that says, do you like me? Yes or no. You can jumble up the alphabet. And, and write it in a way that doesn't make sense to someone who opens the letter unless they have your code. Cryptography is something accessible to all humans. And what Razer tried to do is made a bullshit Razer fun buck, Chuck E. Cheese dollars 
<laughs> that they tried to sell to their consumers as a cryptocurrency and tried to sell to consumers what they call a quote unquote soft miner, which is effectively mm -hmm. just a process that runs as a daemon on the, in the background on your computer that mm -hmm. for a real cryptocurrency would actually be doing math to try and figure out what the next hash for the next block is, contributing electricity, contributing con computing power to the security of the network. A soft miner is literally just a fire hose of your data and processor to Razor. It is one of the mm -hmm. most, and, and in exchange, what they give you is their bullshit Razor Chuck E. Cheese fun bucks, Razor Silver, things that you can <laughs> only use there. If you Google AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she did a really great line of questioning with the the Libra associate, or excuse me, with the Libra panel anyway. Uh, in in I forget, I forget where that would even I guess DC. Yeah, uh, a, a bunch of folks went down to DC to testify uh, and answer questions for for Congress about Facebook's Libra program and what the deal is there. And she she compared Facebook's Libra to a script program, which is uh, something that. Plantation owners used to use in in the U.S. Uh, as a form of funny money. Here is money that you can spend only in these places, and that's effectively what Razor's trying to do: is get their consumers who are spending real-world money to trade their real-world money and their real-world time and attention and processing power in for Razor bucks that you can only use on their platform. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, this Razor Gold and Razor Silver, the whole program has been canceled now, right? Has it? As far as I'm aware, the soft miner is still very much a part of their marketing campaigns. Wow. If you go to Razor.com, they have the Razor soft miner available in the EU and in the US. Um, and you can earn extra silver by running the quote-unquote soft miner. If I recall correctly, it was called Razor Game Booster or something. It was like if you play the games using that software, it'll nope. provide you Razor Silver and it'll boost your game, quote unquote. That is, that is something that they did retire and replaced it with the soft miner. They call ah. it uh, rewards for being AFK. And, and who knows what they're wow. really doing under the hood? Who, who knows what they're actually like? And it even says in, in fine print, after they got a bunch of, of slack for it, Razor Silver is not a cryptocurrency. For more info, please refer to our FAQs. Like they're, they're trying to use, just like Facebook and Libra are trying to use the language of, of cryptocurrencies, miners, mm -hmm. uh, when they are not cryptocurrencies, Razor's trying to do the same thing. It says Razor is not a cryptocurrency. It's a loyalty rewards program. And that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. They want you to run a daemon software on your computer mm -hmm. so that they can give you fun bucks in exchange. Mm, interesting. That's pretty interesting, I must say. So, um, it's talking wild. about like, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. So, considering you uh, mentioned cryptocurrency, for someone who has no idea what cryptocurrency is, how can you like describe it for a layman? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting a little bit easier these days. But um, what what a cryptocurrency is? Remember, crypto is short for cryptography. Um, it's just a digital form of money. Uh, and, and the way that works is uh, through a whole long list of people keeping track of a whole long list of transactions. That's really all it comes down to. In order to wrap your head around a cryptocurrency, not cryptography in general, just a cryptocurrency, you just have to question and challenge yourself to figure out what money is. 
right? What's money really? Money is a unit of account. It's how we know who has paid whom. It's how we know how much money we have left to spend. So all Bitcoin is, is an open source network. Mm -hmm. We have plenty of, of online networks. It's an open source network of people who have opted in to support this network by verifying transactions. Um, and we, we do that with cryptography. Applied cryptography is the idea of applying uh, this, uh, this uh, method of obfuscating information uh, to the methods that we already have in programming. Uh, we use cryptography all day, every day on the internet. If you're on a website that says HTTPS, you're using cryptography. That's that's true for secure sock. It's at, the S means SSL is active. There's an SSL certificate, uh, which is short for secure socket slayer, which means that there is an encryption on the certificate that has been signed cryptographically by the people who made the website. So if you're seeing the certificate, that means you can be sure that you are seeing what the person who created the website intended for you to see and that the domain has not been hijacked, that there hasn't been other things served up, men in the middle attacks served up for you that the creator of the website did not intend. So we do the same thing with a cryptocurrency. Uh, when I go to spend a, a, a bit of Bitcoin or some of a cryptocurrency, all I'm doing is broadcasting my transaction. It doesn't go to a central third party. And that's the main difference between a cryptocurrency and a traditional currency. A traditional fiat currency has a central third party, the US Fed, for example, in, in the case of the US dollar, that decides when do we make more dollars. And having the power centralized in that way is how we wind up in the position that we're in with over $16 trillion in debt that we're never going to get out of and, and, and more money running around that we know what to do with. Uh, <laughs> with something like a cryptocurrency, you cannot make more of it without the consensus of everybody involved. And that's the idea behind this drive of decentralization. How can we distribute power in the power structures that humans need the most more equitably and that's what a lot of people miss with cryptography and things like miners whatever you want to call razor soft miner a, a crypto network whether it's for a currency or not is for distributing power if you're not distributing power then what you're looking for is a database not a crypto network the reason bitcoin is cool and interesting and powerful and the reason cryptocurrencies are the wave of the future is because humans have never had the opportunity to make money that's worth something inherently something that's worth something on its own the u.s fed used to have money issued against gold reserves if you had a, a u.s note a dollar it was worth a certain amount of gold in weight and they had that gold stashed away for you to claim at any given moment, we moved away from the gold standard and now the US dollar is just a shared delusion. So if that's all money is, then why don't we have a shared delusion around something like Bitcoin, something like a cryptocurrency that we can all keep each other accountable for. So when I broadcast a, a Bitcoin transaction, what's really happening is miners around the world that are constantly processing, 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 trying to find the correct mathematical equation that will result in the correct hash, the correct string of letters and numbers that matches the block in the Bitcoin chain before it, 
The first one to find that gets to append the next block of data that might include my transaction that someone else witnessed. That's what miners are doing. They are serving as the witnesses to the transactions between two other third parties that would otherwise not trust each other. Mm -hmm. That's the magic of what crypto networks do. They enable a method of exchange, a unit of account across untrusted third parties. I don't need to know you or know anything in between to know that I sent you a Bitcoin because there are miners that are actually using math, using just mathematics to verify that this transaction was valid. That is amazing. That's really amazing. So since we're talking about cryptocurrency and all, why don't you share what you've been working on? Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you. I would love to. Um, <laughs> the, the idea behind a crypto network, as I said, is to distribute power. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're in a position now in the crypto space where there has sort of developed a quote unquote traditional way of doing things amusingly, even though it's so nascent and so young. Um, humans love to find patterns and we love to do things in the same way over and over again, right? So mm -hmm. in, in cryptography, in applied cryptography, uh, things have been changing a lot uh, just these last few months, really. Uh, the conversation is finally starting to shift away from uh, just creating what, what folks call sound money, which is that, that idea of money that isn't controlled by a central third party, uh, shifting not, not necessarily away from it, but starting to encompass a conversation around what we call in this space crypto governance, right? And we have governance as humans. We have the government in the US. We have the government in India. We have the government in mm -hmm. Portugal. But this idea of governance, how those governments function, how they work, um, how the power flows from a constituency to the decision makers is something that we haven't really quite touched on just yet uh, in the applied cryptography space. There have been some experiments, um, but most of them have failed, uh, but with good reason. We, we've, we've managed to learn a lot of lessons from those failures and, and lessons that we hope we won't repeat. Uh, mm -hmm. In, in, in the cryptography space, there's a, another network called Ethereum in addition to Bitcoin. And what Ethereum is trying to do is move away from proof of work, which is what I described there uh, in, uh, in, that, in that first description of, of crypto networks. What miners are doing is expending a tremendous, tremendous amount of energy. Because in order to find such a complicated hash, what, what, what cryptography does is it takes a bit of data and puts it through an algorithm. And what it spits out on the other end is, is uh, not parsable by a human. So in order to get to that string, a, a computer has to do an enormous amount of processing in order for it to even get close. Which is why mining is so competitive, which is why you get rewarded for finding that next hash. If you're the computer that finds that next correct hash header for the next Bitcoin block, you get whatever, however amount of Bitcoin is currently set to be distributed. There, it halves every, I think, three years it halves. And mm -hmm. that eventually, that, uh, that, that uh, emission will disappear entirely and no new Bitcoins will be issued. There will only ever be 21 million of them, right? Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, that takes power, right? That takes an enormous amount of investment with respect to the hardware. Uh, and then that also creates a secondary market of miners that are able to basically block other people from entering the space by creating what, we, creating what, uh, what, what are called ASICs, uh, application-specific integrated circuits. Um, 
pro processors that are specifically designed to process one thing, right? So when you create mm -hmm. a hardware miner, it becomes much easier to then re-centralize the power away from maybe a central fed. Now the power has, has, has coalesced around the people who have the most powerful hardware, right? Which yeah, means we need a way to influence the way that these networks function. Like once the rules are set, who then gets to decide if the rules needs to if the rules need to change? And that's sort of sort of the big question on everyone's minds now. I bring up Ethereum because Ethereum is trying to move away from proof of work towards what we call proof of stake. Instead of providing processing power and trying to solve a mathematical equation, what this idea of proof of stake offers is this concept that the only thing that matters for me to trust you in the context of a shared space is that you have skin in the game, right? I, I can oh. believe your advice about Destiny 2 if I can see you have 10,000 hours in Destiny 2 then you obviously know what you're talking about and I can trust your opinion, right? Similar oh, idea here, right? Similar idea of skin in the game. So what Ethereum is trying to do is move towards a place where they have no more proof of work at all. They don't have to waste energy in order to keep the network secure. Instead, what they rely on is people with Ethereum and people with Ethereum can stake their Ethereum, right? When, you know, when say, when were you saying S-T-A, K-E, stake, not S-T-E-A-K as delicious, right? <laughs> we're talking about people having something at stake here, right? So when mm -hmm. we say staking, that's what we're talking about. They lock their Ethereum into the network and that mm -hmm. makes them able to verify other transactions. So in that scenario, we're saying, okay, well, we don't have to trust necessarily uh, that this person is is good or bad, we know that we, our interests are aligned because they have Ethereum. And if they're going to mess with the Ethereum network, then it's going to bring them down too. So mm -hmm. then that, that puts us in a position where we no longer then need proof of work, which is super high, high consumption, high energy, uh, high, high barrier to entry. With proof of stake, all you need is to buy Ethereum and stake it against the Ethereum network. Now you can start making some Ethereum for verifying other transactions and so on and so forth. The more Ethereum you stake, the higher the chances are that you're gonna be the next person to append that next block. I'm sure you can already see the problem here. The problem here is that we wind up sort of in that exact same position that we're in in the US. Proof of stake, a pure proof of stake network is an oligarchy. It's a Ponzi mm -hmm. scheme. You need money yeah. to get in. The more money yes. you have, the more money you make. It's that simple. And the yeah. more the more people with more money in the network, the more difficult it becomes for uh, that person who's entering the network to gain any kind of upward mobility to ever hope to be one of those people who might be able to support the network such that they make some money from doing it, right? And mm -hmm. Ethereum's whole, whole shtick is not to be currency. Ethereum's whole shtick is to be a world computer. They believe that they can, uh, Ethereum believes that it can be a world computer for any kind of a decentralized application. Uh, the idea being that we can contribute this con computing power by using Ethereum as a sort of digital gas, digital oil, right? That we can use to pay other computers that we don't necessarily own uh, to run a particular uh, uh, process, right? Uh, there are games being built on top of Ethereum. 
And this is really neat because what, what this means in the context of games is that the, the rule set of the game then has a neutral arbiter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then that means that the game can exist without a studio or publisher directly owning it and directly being responsible for not only making money but for maintaining the quality of the game. Um, we see a whole lot of issues with all of these things. This is such a nascent new space. There's still so much to learn on a daily basis. And that's part of the reason why we're doing a game. So we're building a digital card game, just like Hearthstone. Imagine Hearthstone uh, or Magic the Gathering, but the cards are digital like they are in Hearthstone, but you own them like you do in Magic the Gathering, like as if they were in paper. That's because mm -hmm. now with this digital realm of cryptography, as it pertains to programming, we can we can create unique things. So not only can we create one unique Bitcoin, right? It's still that Bitcoin. That Bitcoin sort of has a, a, a serial number. But mm -hmm. a Bitcoin is the same as every other Bitcoin. So it's fungible. It can be replaced mm -hmm. just like a dollar can be replaced with any other dollar. Right. What's really cool about these networks is that we can create assets, items that are not fungible. Now suddenly... Mm -hmm. All of the assets in our digital games, the the items that we earn, the weapons that we earn, the upgrades that we spend on, those can be digital assets that retain their value in the real world. AFK, when you're not actually in the game, right? And hmm, the difference between, like we've had this before in the context of like EVE Online or World of Warcraft, uh, or Diablo. Diablo is a great example because Diablo put up that uh, that auction house a couple years back when, when Diablo 3 came out uh, and it made a lot of waves because of the way that it worked. I believe it was a Dutch auction house uh, and it mm -hmm. made a lot of waves in the gaming space because it basically made it a little bit pay to win where you could go in there and if you had enough money, you could buy the right stuff. The difference mm -hmm. there is that Blizzard was the arbiter of that mm -hmm. game and they made the decisions about the economic and uh, uh, interactive forces of the title. Now, with these, with this idea of cryptography, which applied cryptography, which we know is used to distribute power, our hypothesis is we can create a digital card game and use it as dog food to learn how a digital governance will grow and extend beyond our purview in the very, very near future. Right. So if Bitcoin is proof of work and Ethereum is trying to move towards proof of stake, which is proof of skin in the game as it pertains to money. What we're mm -hmm. trying to do is, is, is slide to the other end of that spectrum. Proof of work is something that we think we're always going to need. I don't think that we're ever going to be able to get away from it entirely, but there are other options in terms of leaner proof of work that doesn't consume so much processing power and energy and other mm -hmm. things that we can have proof of proof of space proof of time proof of ram proof of storage you know all kinds of things so there are other ways to try and do proof of work but we think that we're always going to need at least one small layer of lean basic cryptographic proof of work in order to attribute a serial number to any other kind of proof that we use here, right? Proof of stake is super helpful and super usable when it comes to the utility of a particular network, but it doesn't, it doesn't provide any security with respect to the economic forces. If you have the, the people with the most Ethereum will always have the power centralized around them, right? What we're trying right. to do is slot, make that slider go to the other end of the spectrum. Time and money 
are on opposite ends of that spectrum. And we already, we know what proof of stake looks like. That's, that is proof of skin in the game as it pertains to money. What we're trying to do is figure out how we can codify proof of stake, skin in the game, as it pertains to time. Because that, we think, is, is the sort of universal factor that we can use for any network. Uh, we think these crypto networks are going to be used to allow humans to coalesce around shared ideas and ideals. So in order to get skin in the game on that front, you must have spent time. And mm -hmm. in order for us in the game of Beyond to track your time spent, what we're doing is when we mint the cards, when the cards get spat out, similarly to the way that Bitcoin gets spat out, um, the, the constituency will, will be able to work together to come to consensus on a uh, on a on a on a on an emission schedule, right? How often do we put out a new set of cards, right? Those cards, when they get minted, they're mostly blank. Each card has a baby little skill tree. So the more you play with it, the more it becomes your own, and the more you get to decide what path you want to go down in terms of a play style. That also means that any one given deck, uh, any one given archetype, any one given play style has uh, countless combinations of abilities and cards and things that you can do in that game. What we're doing is we're borrowing as much from the game space as humanly possible and using what we call the Pokemon model. If you want to mm -hmm. compete uh, in any kind of scene in Pokemon, if you want to be competitive, you need to do so with a Pokemon that you caught on a genuine cartridge. The original trainer number needs to match the original oh. trainer on the cartridge you are competing with. If you are not using a Pokemon that matches the original trainer number on the cartridge you are competing with, you cannot compete. Wow. It's that, that is simple. really interesting. <laughs> so that's what we're trying that's to nice. do here is we're trying to break out the governance portion of a cryptographic network and apply mm -hmm. the concept of skin in the game as it pertains to time to the governance, right? Skin in the game as it pertains to money still really matters when it comes to the utility. We need to be able to scale this network. So we need to be able to trust that someone isn't going to approve a transaction that is going to be only beneficial to them and tank the network. So we need to know that you have skin in the game in terms of money. We need to still have proof of work so that we know that we have that shared security around something that is inherently human, mathematics, right? You can't fake this. You need to have mined it and the math problem needs to be correct. It needs to add up, literally right mm -hmm. we're trying to break out governance and apply it to what we call proof of play what we think of as the third leg to the crypto tripod that will enable crypto networks to finally hit sort of uh, uh what's that word uh, um not maximum velocity but uh, uh, escape velocity for for, for mm -hmm. crypto networks to hit escape velocity we need to be able to quantify time spent right so we want the people who spend the most time playing the game to have the most power when it comes mm -hmm. to making decisions about the game's future. And for right now, all the power is of course centralized around us, the, the progenitors, creators of the game. But over time, mm -hmm. as more players put more time into the game, they will be scraping that power away from us, eroding that power away from us. And as time goes on, ideally, we find ourselves in a position where we have shrunk our position in the game in terms of how much power we have unilaterally to make decisions mm -hmm. 
down such that we are just another person who's another entity contributing to the game and beyond can be something that long long outlives us something that we can take to space with us uh, because that's what chess is that's what solitaire is these are games that belong to everyone and you can make mm -hmm. your own house rules at home and play it in the way that you want to play it but there isn't a central arbiter of course there are chess uh, uh, chess organizations and entities, but they can't tell you how you can and can't play a game. And that simply hasn't been possible in a digital realm before. Because in order for us to play a digital game, we need to use the code that a central creator created for us to play with. Now what we're mm -hmm. doing is using the power of a cryptographic network to do what it does for open source. Cryptographic networks give open source software basically a business model. And we can do the mm -hmm. same thing with games, just like cryptocurrencies are removing the middlemen from interactions in the, the financial systems. We don't need banks mm -hmm. anymore. We can do the same thing in the game space. We don't need publishers anymore. If an indie mm -hmm. studio decides they want to make a game that is 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 times their size in terms of scope, they can. They can do it. Because they can design the amazing. rules, publish the rules, build a community around the rules. And now suddenly, because of this cryptographic network, they have a method through which to capture and retain value over time. That is really, really interesting. Am I making any the whole, sense? The whole concept. Is this, yes, am I, you am are. I just babbling? No, no, you are making total sense. And great. It's, it's pretty great. Like People are out there who have some misconceptions about the whole realm of cryptography. And this really you know, opens up the discussion and gives more insight about what is and what is not cryptography. That is really amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we are, we're, we're working really hard on it. We're, we're working on the game first, because I think this is the thing that I'll leave you with on this particular topic. Um, I also mm -hmm. did a guest. Uh, I was also on uh, uh, Digitally Rare, uh, another podcast mm -hmm. specifically focused on the cryptographic space and how it pertains to digital assets. Um, mm -hmm. And the episode name is Every Crypto Network is a Game. And that's, that's what I want to drive home for your listeners is Bitcoin is a game. It's just all game theory with no mm -hmm. game design, right? Games are inherently human constructs. If you leave a human mm -hmm. in solitary confinement, they will find a game for themselves to play. They will make one up for themselves. If you are on a desert island, you will find things to do to keep yourself occupied. Games are how we hone our senses. Games are how we get smarter. Games are how we get better. And they're on the forefront of the conversation uh, with respect to uh, a UBI and the future of the human workforce. Uh, games are, uh, we think, how we're going to get there. So when you think about a cryptographic network, we think that a game is the only way to think about it properly, correctly. Because if you think about Bitcoin, all you're doing is playing the game of capitalism because you want to get something early before it's too valuable and that mm -hmm. is not going to be enough in the long run for humans to come up with what we refer to now as sound money because sound money isn't just a function of that centralized source of power deciding when to print more it's a function of the centralized source of power uh in the society around the money because money isn't just a thing that you find on the ground like gold money is a function of the society you can't just make money and then build a society around money that's what america did we know what that leads into we're in late late stage capitalism taken to 11 right now and we see what it looks like already 
the only way mm-hmm. humans will get to sound money digitally especially is by mm-hmm. cultivating a community around a, a shared ideal first and allowing the currency the money side the financial side to serve as a function of the society and that's why we're dead focused on the game because we know that if we make the best possible game we can a game that if if tomorrow SHA-256, the, like the encryption algorithm, like the encryption algorithm, if it were cracked tomorrow, we would still have an incredible universe, an incredible card game that is super fun to play, that people will actually want to live in, a universe that people want to be a part of. And as more and more people start discovering that third place, that third place is, is an emerging sector for humans. We go home and we go to work and we go to this third place, which is where we get to engage with all the people in our digital realms that we don't get to see on a daily basis. The more time we spend in these digital realms, whether it's Minecraft, WoW, Destiny, you name it, what or whatever whatever popular you know community forum. Let's say you're really into alt indie music, you're really into electro uh, electro funk, right? And you're you're a big participant in the community. That forum is enough to start a society around. And as we move into this age of globalization and start looking towards the stars, nothing is going to be more important than having communities that are safe, open, inclusive, and welcoming. Got it. I totally agree. And I really admire your enthusiasm around this sphere. It's really, really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I think it's um, I think it's incredibly important. And I, 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 I do feel a little uh, sad sometimes looking around the space uh, right now because it is a lot of cis hetero white dudes with so much privilege that they cannot possibly wrap their mind around why ethereum might not be a viable solution for all humans on earth unless you're already rich and white uh yeah. the 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 idea that in order for you to have a vote you need to have money is exactly what the u.s is dealing with right now all of the money mm-hmm. in politics is how we got to where we are in the united states of america right now so to expect that as humans, we will use that same model of capitalism first in order to make a new form of sound money for all humans is one of the most inequitable ideas I think I have come across in, in the tech space in my 10 years. All right. So since we're talking about future and cryptography and all, I do also consider IoT to be a part of future up and coming tech. So do you have any IoT devices at home? You know, uh, I think that this is also a super, super interesting conversation as it pertains to cryptography. Um, I, I don't hmm. anymore. I mean, well, I do have one. I have a Google. What is it? It's the one with the screen, a home hub um, mm-hmm. that I got for Christmas from my aunt. Uh, and I like it. I use it. Uh, right now we're traveling. So uh, it's not something that I use on a daily basis. But mm-hmm. uh, I do think that the more time that we spend with these kinds of IoT devices. I think this is another really excellent Trojan horse uh, for people to learn more about cryptography because we're, uh, again, moving towards a space where we are going to have more self-sovereignty, more control over our data, more control over our digital lives. Uh, We're just exiting this first era of of true digital innovation. And we have these incredible products now, like, like Facebook, that allow us to reach and target specific people all over the world, but we know that that's a double-edged sword with Cambridge Analytica, the way that things have gone in the U.S. already as well, and especially uh, in the U.K. with Brexit. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're in a position now where our self-sovereignty digitally is super, super important to us, so I think that we're going to have a little bit of, a, of, a, uh, of an ebb 
after this long flow that we've had of companies trying to make uh, the interconnected home work. Because as humans wake up and realize just how much of their data is going through that fire hose back home to mama, papa, Google, uh, mama, papa, Facebook, <laughs> whatever, right? Uh, they're gonna, they're gonna start questioning having these devices in their homes. And I think we're gonna see a huge lull in the, the IOT space until we get to a place where consumers can wrap their heads around what is happening to their data exactly. It's not enough to say your data doesn't leave the device until X, Y, and Z. We need to have a we need to have a supply chain style control over what fire hoses we are opening and to whom at any given moment. It's one thing if all of my data remains on my device, none of it gets shared. All of it happens direct. All of the processing happens directly on the device. But when I want to, I can share certain pieces of. Let's say I'm walking through New York City. And I know that I'm hungry. I'll happily turn on a fire hose of data, my location data specifically, so that the mm -hmm. people, the, the advertisers who are in that space, I can say, hey, here's where I'm headed. I'm going there on foot. One of you feed me. <laughs> then I know that's the only bit of data that's being shared, that my walking, my walking location for the next 20 minutes is being shared. Right. And mm -hmm. if it only in a fuzzy sense and only people in this radius can then advertise to me, that kind mm -hmm. of granular control is something that I think is going to become more and more prevalent as as these conversations become more and more prevalent, uh, and especially as it pertains to, to governance, like we were just talking about with the governance mm -hmm. of Ethereum or governance of a game um, governance over a shared network that is doing this kind of computing like Google Assistant is going to be super, super important. That's our, in that case, that's our shared ideal. Our shared ideal is self-sovereignty over our data, control over our data. There's our shared ideal. Great. Now we need a method through which to, to have a unit of account. That's how we get to sound money in that context. But the idea that we're all going to have one world computer or one world currency, I think is a little bit silly. Um, I think what we're going to have is many, many, many digital assets that all have a baseline layer of liquidity so that when I pay you, I pay you in what's important to me and you receive it in what's important to you. And that means that we can use any currency or any digital thing because physical things have that barrier where if I give you a lamp to pay you for your services, now you either need to need a lamp or sell the lamp <laughs> and then you yeah. get the, the money out of it and then you have to pay for the fees and then you have to actually do the time to, to sell the lamp itself. In the future, mm. when all of these digital assets are infinitely liquid, we'll have a much easier time with something like an internet uh, of, of things device at home, being able to say to a washer dryer, for example, um, do X, Y, or Z. But a washer dryer also has no need to communicate any of this information back to um, mama so, or papa until we get to a point where it has a value add for us, which as of right now, it doesn't because it's a machine. And even recently, there were some reports that the audio recordings from Google Home devices were manually being reviewed by personals over there. Right. So they were like, just, so just train the voice right. model. So yeah. It's That's true. pretty creepy. It's true. And like, look, like this would be one thing if we would be able to say, hey, actually, I forget what it's called. Um, I want to say it's Jarvis, but I don't think it is. There's an open source. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a Watson. It's a Watson reference. Uh, 
uh, is it no? It's a Sherlock Holmes reference. Um, uh, it's his it's his brother's name, I think. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, there's an open source Google Assistant competitor, right? That that is slowly but surely creeping along and building up its capabilities, right? If I were able to say, here are here is a trustless network where you don't have to trust anybody else. Uh, and you will get a baseline level of assistant computing. It'll happen on your device. Your audio will never leave your device and your data will never be exposed. However, if you want a better, higher fidelity experience that learns you better, you can have a trusted relationship with X, Y, or Z. Here is an, a, a pseudo-autonomous pseudonymous, uh, uh, participant in the network this person is going to be reading and transcribing for you. How much do you want to pay them? And maybe eventually they do reveal their identity, but what it really amounts to is being able to part out piecemeal the gig economy, right? The, the, the digital workforce of needing things on a moment to moment basis and not necessarily having a job that requires 800 different skills of which you are maybe good at five, in this new world, you might be able to focus on just those five skills because there is enough work for you to do piecemeal and enough methods through which for you to get value for that work that you could just focus on being, say, let's say you are otherwise uh, unable to, maybe let's say you're, you're not mobile, right? You are not an ambulatory uh, human being, right? You are disabled, mm -hmm. you are otherwise not ambulatory. Your job prospects are a fraction of what an able-bodied person's are. So to open up a, an entire new workforce uh, to humans uh, that are otherwise unable to do other jobs uh, is, is super, super exciting to me. And so a, a platform like that, that would enable me to have a baseline level of service but go above and beyond and maybe create a trusted relationship with a trustless entity, uh, I think that's really, really compelling. Uh, and I think the, the more that we talk about these internet connected devices in our homes, the more this will become commonplace, right? You know, Bitcoin yes. seems like pretty far off in the horizon to most people still, but hey, it still came up around the Thanksgiving and, and Thanksgiving tables uh, at the end of 2017, right? We're mm -hmm. gonna start to see this happen more and more and more and more as more people become more and more conscious about the fact that their data is being offloaded and made money off of. Mon data is more valuable than money now, or excuse me, data is more valuable than oil now. Nothing mm -hmm. is more valuable than knowing exactly how to advertise to someone so that you can sell them your product, straight up. Totally agree. Interesting times, I must say. <laughs> Interesting, scary, exciting, but you know we yes. got, we got to try and be as optimistic as we possibly can while still being realistic about uh, what we're being faced with. Yes. Interesting and scary times as well. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So uh, let's wrap this up. Tell us where we can find you on the internet. Oh, that's a good, yeah, that's a good way to wrap it up. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter yes. at Mark B, M-A-R-K-B. The letter B is in boy. Uh, and you can also do me a favor and go and follow Beyond on Twitter. It's at GoBeyond, G-O-B-A-E-O-N-D. Uh, we're going to be taking the Twitter account 
private at the beginning of August. So if this gets up before August, be sure to get over there and follow the account because we'll have a lot more to share via the Twitter account uh, as, as things start to ramp up in the month of August. And we want to try and keep that as a sort of like closed little group for now. Uh, and, you know, we'll let people request to follow, but we're going to take the account private so that we can create a little bit more of a tight knit community. So definitely go follow us at Go Beyond. Um, and you can, of course, go to beyond.com, B-A-E-O-N-D.com to see a video of me talking about all of these things and click through to the wiki to get to know uh, the first two characters that we've revealed from the game, uh, Suena and Zenith. Uh, the game takes place in this uh, far-flung post-singularity, post-scarcity future where we are all space cow people gallivanting around the universe, uh, finding ether rifts and sucking ether out of them, uh, which is sort of the way that we've uh, come to this new era of exploration and innovation in the universe. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Shimon. It's been a pleasure. I hope you had fun. <laughs> I did. I did. I very much like to do this again. And I'm in very good company with, with other guests you've had on the show as well. Yeah, sure. Let's do it really, really soon. <laughs> really, really soon. Thanks again, man. Thank, thank you so much. I'll see you soon. All right, folks. That's all for this episode. I hope you liked it. And if you did, go ahead, share, like, subscribe, do your thing. And hey, if you have any questions or just some constructive criticism, do reach out to me on Twitter, which is at Shimon IPS. That is S-H-I-M-O-N-I-P-S. Just tweet at me and I'll get back to you ASAP. All right. I'll see you in the next one.